You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. If you'd like to open your Bibles, we're in John chapter 8 again. And uh, starting from verse 28 this morning. When I was just barely 13 years old, I went on a church youth camp for a weekend. It was down near Port Elliot in South Australia. For those of you who know South Australia, or the place called Boomer Beach. Now, I don't remember too much of the weekend there, but I do remember the final night. After dinner, all of us young people gathered in the meeting hall at the camp to hear someone speak about Jesus Christ. I don't remember anything about his message. But I clearly remember the closing invitation that he made to give our lives to Christ. Please bow your heads, he said. If anyone wants to give their life to Christ, just put your hand up. Now, I remember sitting there with my head bowed thinking, no way, not me, especially not in front of my mates, not a chance. And while I sat there saying no in my head, my hand went up in the air. To this day, I can't explain it. And to this day, I get goosebumps when I tell the story. Now, I think there were four or five of us who put our hands up that night, and we were escorted into a back room uh, behind the hall to talk to someone about the decision we'd just made and about what happens now that we're Christians. As I said, I don't remember all that much, but I remember the others, all girls, crying like babies in this back room. And all I wanted to do was laugh. It wasn't that I wanted to laugh at them. I wasn't laughing at their weeping. I wanted to laugh because I felt an overwhelming sense of joy. It felt like something heavy had been lifted off of me. And I also felt, strangely, very self-conscious that my reaction was so very different to theirs. But regardless, I felt different. I felt clean. I felt lighter somehow. I bought myself a Bible shortly after. It was my first ever Bible, and it's one I still have today, actually. And I went to church and to youth group every time the doors were open. I read the Bible as much as I could, devoured it like a hungry man, and I went door knocking to tell people about Jesus. For the next several weeks, all I wanted to talk about was Jesus Christ. My mum and sisters were pretty happy for me. They were all Christians, but... Dad wasn't because he was an atheist. He thought it was the biggest load of rubbish he'd ever heard. And of course, none of my schoolmates were interested in it either. As I recall, they mocked me and criticised me and ignored me and shunned me. And it wasn't too long, however, when my passion began to cool. Two months or three months or six months, I don't remember exactly, but it didn't last very long. When it finally died down, I stopped going to church. I stopped reading the Bible. I stopped praying. And I stopped telling people that I'm a Christian. And I spent the next 15 years running away from Christ. I became more selfish and more self-absorbed. I started drinking and smoking and swearing like a trooper. My behaviour deteriorated until it reached the point where there wasn't very much I was not prepared to do, no matter how degrading it was, either to myself or to someone else. There was, for so many years, zero evidence 
that I'd ever had any sort of encounter with God when I was 13. In fact, my general behaviour spoke the exact opposite. It wasn't until my marriage broke down when I was 28 that uh, I turned back to God. And I had no dramatic conversion experience. Rather, I just felt a very slow but a growing interest in the things of God. I found a church to go to on my own. I began reading the Bible again and praying, and then I met Mel, and the rest is history, as they say. Over the next few years, my interest in everything about Christ and the Bible increased until he became my passion and my life. Now that begs the question, at what point did I become a Christian? Was it when I was 13? There's no doubt that it was a powerful experience, one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had, and it's one that still moves me today, exactly 50 years and five weeks later today. For many years, I thought it was the time of my conversion, but now I'm not so sure. Did I become a Christian when I turned to God in despair 15 years later? Was that when I was saved? Even though there was no profound experience or emotion attached to it, I did feel a sense of peace, like a very gentle sense of peace wash over me. And in the years that followed, I could see my life was changing for the better. Maybe it was some time over the course of those next few years or so after that. Maybe I sort of grew into faith. That's the experience many of you have who have been brought up as Christians. You can't pinpoint a time when you made a conscious decision for Christ. You've just always been a Christian. So is a dramatic experience or instant transformation evidence of a genuine conversion? Often it is. When I was in my late teens, I knew a bikey of the Hells Angels persuasion. Apart from riding with the gang, he was also a, a bit of a drug dealer that we liked to visit from time to time. I lost touch with him for a few years, but when we met again, he was a very different person. All he wanted to do was tell me about his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't want to hear about it at all, but I couldn't deny that there was a dramatic change in him. wonder what became of him. I wonder if he abandoned his faith like I abandoned mine. Was his enthusiasm a flash-in-the-pan experience like mine was? Now, when I reflect on my teenage experience, I can't genuinely conclude that I became a, did become a Christian then. There's a lack of evidence six months afterwards that I was a Christian. Now, there would not have been a person on planet earth that would have guessed that I was or had been a Christian if he saw my behaviour six months or so down the track. I'm sure we all know people who claim to be Christians but who swear like troopers and drink and smoke and sleep around and never foot set foot in the church, who are self-absorbed and selfish just like the teenage me. What are we to think about them? What are we to make of them? If we're to take Jesus seriously, we have to doubt the genuineness of their Christian faith and hence the genuineness of their salvation. So let's have a look at our text to find out why I would say something like that. So John chapter 8, picking it up in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you notice that? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what does it mean to abide? Other translations put this verse, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, or if you hold to my teaching, or you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Typically, the Amplified Bible tries to cover all the bases when it puts it like this. If you abide in my word, continually obeying my teachings and living in accordance with them, then you are truly my disciples. Now, that certainly challenges any idea that I may have had a, had become a genuine Christian when I was 13 years old. There is no way that I continued in his word. In fact, I did my best to avoid his word and to avoid him. I ran as far as I could in the opposite direction for so long. And of course, that also raises the question, what would have become of me if I had have died a week later? Would I have entered heaven? Or would I have been found myself a poor, deluded fool in hell? What if I died a year later? Or ten years later, what would have become of me? Now, plenty of people would say that my experience was genuine and that I had nothing to be worried about. You can be a Christian without doing the stuff a Christian would do, some would say. You can accept Jesus as your Saviour without making him your Lord. You can believe in him without submitting to him. You can be a believer without showing any evidence. That was a very, very common claim 20 or 30 years ago. There was quite a controversy about it, a lordship salvation controversy it was called at the time, where some would say you can become a believer, accept Jesus as your saviour, but never submit to him as lord. But can you really? We'd probably do well to consult the Bible to see what Jesus has to say about this rather than listen to any well-meaning platitudes or succumb to any sentimentalism about the past experiences we may have had. And one of the things we've seen often in John's Gospel is statements about how the people believed in him. Back in John chapter 2, verse 23, it said, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. In John chapter 4, the uh, the woman at the well, many Samaritans from the town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. John chapter 7, yet many of the people believed in him. And the verse we've just read, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there are plenty of instances where many believed in Jesus. And yet so many of those who believed in him seemed to go into hiding shortly after believing. Not only that, they all seemed to turn on him. For all the thousands who supposedly believed, Jesus was only left with a handful at his crucifixion. Most of the others were in the crowd baying for his blood instead. Some belief 
that turned out to be. In fact, Jesus himself seems to put no stock in their profession of faith. Here in chapter 8, for example, Jesus soon calls out the very same ones who said they had just believed in him, and he tells them, You cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So if we're to take our Bible seriously, it seems there is belief and there is belief. And the two are not necessarily the same thing. There is a belief that responds to signs or situations or circumstances or even Jesus' words. But it has no depth. It has no saving power. It may even be accompanied by great emotion and enthusiasm. But loud professions of faith and even dramatic change is no guarantee that the faith is real. Then there's the belief that penetrates to the very depths of our soul and does result in salvation. And this may or may not be accompanied by dramatic and visible evidence. We see both types in the Gospels. There are those whose apparent faith is accompanied by dramatic signs and even miracles, and yet they don't stick with Jesus. In fact, some of them who profess him as Lord don't have a genuine faith at all. You'd recall the passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And what does Jesus say? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The very existence of this passage in the Bible should disturb us, for it tells us that it's possible to be false followers of Jesus Christ. We can be deluded into thinking that we're believers when we are not. So a dramatic conversion and even a powerful or exciting ministry is no guarantee that a person is a believer. In contrast, most of Jesus' closest disciples, the ones that stuck with him, had very uneventful introductions to faith. Jesus said to most of them, follow me, and they followed. No fanfare, no fireworks, just simple belief. But it was belief enough to cause them to put their tools down and follow him, and follow him to death. So we can't determine the genuineness of someone's faith just by the events that surrounded their apparent conversion, nor can we judge it by their professions of faith. Neither can we judge our own Christian faith by these things. So how then do we judge? Are there any distinguishing features that sets a genuine believer apart from a false believer? Now, Jesus touches on it in our passage today, but such a brief comment that it can easily slip past without us noticing it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, So what does that word abide mean? The Greek word that's used there 
appears more than a hundred times in the New Testament, and roughly a third of them are in John's Gospel. To abide means to dwell, to remain, to continue in, to persevere in. A few verses where it's used will give you an idea of the meaning. John 1.33, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, speaking of Jesus, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Or Jesus says in John chapter 6, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Also in John 6, Jesus said, The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him. In John 15.4, remain in me, abide in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains, abides on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. So you can see that abide means more than just fleeting contact with his word. It has a sense of extended time. It suggests that you've put your roots down in this place and that you don't intend to move out. When you abide in his word, you plant yourself in his word. You live in it. You dwell in it. You remain in it. You endure in it. You never intend to leave it. That's all very well, you might be thinking, but that doesn't mean I have to do anything with it. Surely I can just believe. Surely that's enough. If I believe the Bible and keep believing the Bible, I can consider myself a Christian. After all, it's by faith we're saved, not by works. So should we accept it at that? Or should we insist on seeing some evidence to support the claim? After all, anyone can claim that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour. Does the mere proclamation of it make it true? Now there's a funny thing about faith and that's funny disturbing not funny ha ha merely claiming to believe means little without some sort of evidence to back it up you'd recall James said that even the demons believe and tremble the demons know better than any of us the reality of Jesus Christ they knew who he was when he walked the earth they know their days are numbered And they believe, but their type of belief does nothing to save them. So there must be more to believing. At least there must be more to the type of believing that is genuine faith in Christ. And there is. Genuine faith reveals itself in several ways. It begins, of course, with As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you'll be saved. But it doesn't finish there. Genuine faith is accompanied by evidence. As James said shortly before, he mentioned those demons who believe. What good is it, brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there must be some evidence. 
Now, anyone with a helpful or a charitable bone in their body will do works of some sort. They'll help others that are in need. But good works on their own don't necessarily say anything about genuine faith. And good works, of course, can be accompanied by very shallow declarations of faith. So there must still be more to this. And there is. Genuine faith is accompanied by obedience. Did you notice what Jesus said to the one who says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? He says that the only ones who will enter heaven are those who do the will of his Father in heaven. And when they continue the protest, he tells them, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now this is a serious matter. If this were the only place in Scripture that links obedience with salvation, we could probably find plenty of ways to explain it away. But it isn't. John also wrote in his first letter, It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And Jesus has already said earlier in John's Gospel, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey him shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul wrote, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you are commanded. There's plenty more. We don't have time to cover all of them, but you get the picture. If you claim to be a Christian, yet don't want to obey God, then there is every reason to question whether your faith is genuine. So-called faith that does not generate a desire to obey is not faith at all. It's important to stress, of course, that we will never, in this life, be able to obey God perfectly. The remains of the sinful fleshness will see to it that our obedience is imperfect and only ever done in fits and starts. So we need to be like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, where he cried out, the good I, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Genuine faith reveals itself by a transformed life and a continually transforming life. Faith that is founded on something solid trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, Paul wrote to Titus. And it must be this way, for God is always at work in his people to conform them to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Genuine faith begins to treasure the things that Jesus Christ treasures. Our desires become less worldly and more otherworldly. As John MacArthur puts it, drawn to Christ, they are drawn away from everything else. And love of the flock is a mark of genuine faith. Genuine faith wants to be with other Christians. Being with other believers is invigorating, or at least it should be. 
For these are the people you now have the most in common with. You share the same spiritual DNA, the same bloodline, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He purchased you and I with his blood, making us into brothers and sisters in him and children of God, his Father. For we know, John writes in his first letter, we know that we have passed over from death to life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love remains in death. One of the clearest signs that your faith is for real is your love for other Christians. You're kidding yourself if you think you love your, you love the brothers if you don't want to be with them regularly. And love for the church is another sign of genuine faith. It's, un, it's easy to claim that we love that ethereal entity, the universal church, that takes no effort and no commitment. It costs precisely nothing to claim that you love the universal church. But if you're for real, you'll also love the local church. For the local church is the visible manifestation of the universal church. And that love is manifested by commitment to the local church. Commitment to front up on Sundays, to serve where possible, to encourage each other. Hebrews, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Really, how could we treat the church any other way when you consider that the church is so precious that Jesus laid down his life for it? And finally, genuine faith remains. It abides. It lasts for a lifetime. Genuine faith is not that rush of emotion and enthusiasm that I had when I was on that youth camp all those years ago. That might be the start of genuine faith, but don't mistake it for the faith itself. Genuine faith will still be there two years later, 20 years later. It will still be there on your deathbed. In fact, it may well be at its greatest on the deathbed. Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Genuine believers will follow Jesus anywhere, right to the end. There's a cost to discipleship. Easy believism, as, some, as it's sometimes called, doesn't produce real Christians. It produces those who believe for a while and then turn away, sometimes even later turning on Jesus Christ to attack him, just like so many of those early believers did. Jesus isn't interested in short-term followers. He isn't interested in fair-weather friends, those who will fall by the wayside. They must abide if they are to follow him. So what are we to do with people who claim to be Christians without showing evidence? For starters, 
we shouldn't take their claim at face value. Instead, we should examine the evidence and warn them, if necessary, of the disastrous consequences of continuing in their delusion that they're Christians when the signs say otherwise. Who knows, you may even snatch them out of the flames as hell, as Jude wrote. Or it may be that they've just lost their way for a little while. Then we encourage them to get back on the narrow way, and it is a narrow way. Either result is better than the alternative of letting them continue down paths that lead to destruction. What if you struggle to see the evidence in your own life? Even though you might believe you're Christian, what if the evidence isn't there? Now, you don't necessarily need to despair. It may be that your faith is genuine. It may be that you haven't been a believer for very long. God usually takes his time working change in you. It's a slow process. In fact, it's a lifelong process. So if you're fairly new to the faith, don't become disheartened too quickly. Maybe you have been a Christian for a while, though, but you don't see much evidence. Again, it's a slow process. But can you see some change? Can you see some difference between where you are now in your faith and your love for Jesus Christ and his word, even if it's only a little bit? So then, if you see some change, don't despair. God is at work. You may need to ask him why it's so slow. Is there something you're doing or not doing that's hindering your growth? But if you claim to be a Christian, you don't see any evidence, apart from your claim that you're a follower of Christ, then you're in serious trouble. The Bible is clear that real disciples of Christ abide. They stick with him. And that means they also show signs of genuine faith. And you know it's possible to have an emotional response to Jesus, a response that goes no deeper than your mind and your emotions. The Jews believed in him, as John's Gospel shows over and over. And the parable of the soils tells us the same thing. You'd recall that some of the seed fell on rocky ground. This seed immediately sprang up, but it didn't survive. As soon as the sun came up, it scorched the plant and it died. Jesus explains that parable by telling us that what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. But he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he falls away. This is what seems to have happened to the many Jews who believed, but then turned their back on him. It's what I think happened to me all those years ago. I had no root. My faith didn't survive. I received the word with joy. It sprung up with enthusiasm, but it didn't survive. Now what that root is that was missing in my life, I'll probably talk about sometime in the future. But the point of this message is to encourage each one of us to examine our lives See if you are truly in the faith. See whether your faith is deep or whether it is a shallow one that doesn't survive. Ultimately, 
the proof of truth faith is that it lasts. It doesn't give up under the pressure, doesn't give up under opposition. It isn't distracted by new toys or even new ideas. True faith abides and it abides in Jesus Christ and it abides in his word. And that abiding brings evidence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that sometimes your word is not comfortable to read, but challenges us, challenges us to examine ourselves, Lord, to see whether we're in the faith, challenges us to see what evidence there is that we are believers as we claim to be. Because, Lord, none of us want to be like those so-called believers on that judgment day to whom Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, we want your word to abide in us and we want to live, dwell, endure in your word. So, Father, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to write your word on our heart, to tattoo it on our hearts, Lord, so that it never departs from us and so that we never depart from it. Lord, I pray that in whatever areas of our lives we are not measuring up and conforming to the image of Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction to us? Would you prompt us to change our ways, to put aside those things that, that dishonour Jesus Christ, that lead to destruction, that send a wrong message to other people? Lord, we ask that our lives will be distinctive. Distinctive because the evidence says that we are something other than what the world is. Lord, we pray for friends, family, strangers even, who have professed faith in Christ but it's shallow it doesn't last. Lord, we pray that you'll bring true, deep, lasting faith to them, that you'll bring transformation to their hearts and to their lives so that they will too be witnesses to Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for those who have not yet heard the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ living, dying, rising again to bring salvation to rebels, enemies of God, to reconcile them to the Father, to bring them into his family as brothers and sisters and children of the living God. We pray, Lord, that you'll open doors for us to speak boldly words of truth, words of grace, to those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for a faith that abides in each one of us until the very end. May on our deathbed, our greatest cry would be, thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. 
For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.